the lower part also, guys. So let's stand together and sing 144B. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to John chapter 18. The Lord is on trial before Pontius Pilate. We are considering rather slowly some very, very important questions that Pilate is asking. We considered what charge there was against Jesus and how indeed the voices cried out that he was a righteous man and not to be condemned. We considered also how uh, he asked if Jesus were a king, a very important question. And we saw that he is indeed a king of peace and a king of a kingdom, not of this world and so forth. We consider today another very important question, what is truth? But uh, let's back up just to uh, verse 31 for context. And we'll read down through verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Uh, how about verse 30? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the truth from this, your word, would sanctify us, for your word is truth, and pray that you would inscribe that truth upon every heart, that we should rejoice in having been set free, for whom the Son makes free by his truth is free indeed. May that freedom and that joy be ours in finding him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask it for his sake. Amen. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary announced that the word of the year was post-truth. What does post-truth mean? According to their website, it means, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion then appeals to emotion and personal belief, end quote. Uh, basically, it means that feelings have effectively replaced facts. Welcome to our world of post-truth. It's a pretty weary world. You can see the weariness on people's faces. We are tired. We are tired of being misled. We are tired of not knowing what to believe. If you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. If you do watch the news, you're misinformed. (laughs) Trust in the mainstream media has fallen to 32%. But then again, as I pointed out before, 62.7% of statistics are made up on the spot. (laughs) We, We live in an age of fake news. We don't trust our media, and certainly not our government. And so, as one man says, we live in a country where a significant portion of the population believes that professional wrestling is real and the moon landing was faked. So, the effect on us spiritually, though, has been nothing short of devastating because truth is the cash of our true spiritual life. 
So as one woman put it in her book, Finding God at Harvard, she wrote, students feel safer as doubters than as believers, and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. I just think that's incredibly well said, and I'm going to say it again. Students feel safer as doubters than as believers, and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. End quote. Just the word truth is a um, pointy, uncomfortable word today. It, it, it sounds offensive. People have stopped looking for the truth, that is, the truth that can give meaning and purpose to all of life and history and why we're here and where we're going and what can be done about it. They might believe in things like your truth or my truth, but not in the truth. People are so afraid of believing falsehood. People are rightly afraid of being sold falsehood. But you know, there's an even greater danger than that. The danger of becoming so jaded that you can never find and believe the truth. And so this is a sermon on how you can be a spiritual finder instead of a perpetual seeker. And for that, we need a truth that we can trust. As Christians, we claim to have found it or rather, to have found him. Let's consider this passage before us in three parts. First, uh, Jesus is the king of truth. Second, um, those who are not of the truth scoff at the very idea of truth. And third, everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus' voice. And I'm sorry, I know it's a a little extra close in here today. Uh, see some fans waving and so forth. If uh, somebody wouldn't mind turning on the Arctic blast and waking everybody up for my first point, that would be great. All right. Uh, so um, we, we are uh, returning today uh, to the trial of Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. The rulers of the Jews have delivered Jesus into his hands, wanting an execution. But Pilate is not going to put anyone to death without even hearing charges. And so, as we come to the passage, uh, Pilate is now questioning his prisoner. Last week, we considered Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And the you is emphatic. The sense is, you? You are the king of the Jews? Because Pilate is incredulous. This man about whom so much has been said, he doesn't look like much. And then as now, Jesus just doesn't fit people's expectations. Jaded people especially would be likely to overlook him. So he's not like any king that Pilate is used to. Uh, last week we considered how Jesus is indeed a king, but a very different, a very wonderful king, whose kingdom is not of this world, a kingdom of peace. But now Pilate probes more deeply about this matter of being a king. He, Pilate wants to know, as the Roman governor, is Jesus a revolutionary? That is, is he guilty of treason or sedition against Caesar? Is he a rival king? Well, Caesar's kingdom and all the kingdoms of this world advance by force and threat. That's what he's worried about. 
But Christ's kingdom advances using entirely different weapons that Pilate refuses even to acknowledge the truth. That is the weapon by which Christ's kingdom advances. Point one, Jesus is the king of truth. Jesus is the king of truth. Verse 37, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And I must point out that this is the climax of all that was going before. This is a huge concern of John all throughout this gospel. I mean, Matthew uses the word truth once. Luke Twice, Mark, three times. John uses it 45 times in the gospel and another 38 times in the rest of his writing because John cares so deeply about the truth and presents Jesus as the answer to the noble question of what is true, of what is really real. That is a great concern of this book. If anything the ancient world was more confusing, more pluralistic, and frankly, more jaded, more cynical, more diverse in the worst sense of that word. In his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon summarized it this way, saying that the various religions were considered by the people as equally true by the philosopher, as equally false, and by the magistrate, as equally useful. Into such a miserable world, Jesus was sent. And why was he sent? For this specific purpose, to bear witness to the truth. And if you didn't notice, that's a subtle claim to his divinity. You and I didn't come here. We were born here. Jesus came. As he repeatedly said, he was sent. God was manifested in the flesh, or as we read at the beginning of the book, I think you know, might know the verse, perhaps, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how he's introduced to us. And you notice how he's been put here. He's come to bear witness to the truth. Well, what does that mean? I mean, Jesus isn't come to teach us a little truth here and a little truth there. A little religious truth? Oh, no. He's talking about the truth that is central to all things. The pivotal truth upon which Everything hinges. The foundational truth upon which reality is built. If you want to know why you're here, well, the world was made through him, though the world did not know him. But that's why you're here. Because he made you. If you want to know what it means to know him or to really live, well, we prayed it earlier. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I could go on, but he has put himself in the center of history, 
All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. He's put Himself in the center of the Bible to say that all the Scriptures speak of Him. He says that all the promises are true in Him. A promise, you know, is only as good as it is true. But all the promises in Christ are true. And amen. And all the warnings in the Bible are also true. Because, you know, a warning is only as valuable as it is true. And all those warnings drive us to Christ, who will judge the world in righteousness. So all, all principles of knowledge and wisdom meet in Him. Life and reality can only be understood as we know Him. And if you miss Christ, you are guaranteed to get all the big stuff of life wrong. But if you know Him today, all the great questions of your life have been answered in the most joyful, confident, wonderful way. He has come to bear witness to the truth. He is the king of truth. And this means that his kingdom must be entered in a very different way from the kingdoms of this world. No visas, no passports can get you in. You must embrace the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, he says. And Jesus presents that truth even as an invitation to Pilate. I mean, it's pretty impressive. He's on trial and he still is making a kind of invitation to Pilate. You know, Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate scoffs in reply, what is truth? Bringing us to our second point. Those who are not of the truth scoff at the very idea of truth. Those who are not of the truth, as Jesus puts it, scoff at the very idea of truth. Unwittingly, perhaps, Pilate asks what is truly one of the most important questions of our time, of all time. What is truth? Though that question doesn't come as a, 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 a desperate attempt to find out from the maker of the universe what is really true. Oh no, it comes with this sneer, with a scoff. For if he were asking sincerely, he would, of course, not immediately walked away, but stayed to hear an answer. Pilate is not asking this question as a truth seeker. And I suppose we might have some sympathy for the man. Uh, there were great matters facing him at that moment. Uh, there were angry leaders outside there for the feast. Uh, he was the Roman governor of a troublesome province at a time of great tension, and as history had already proven at that point, being the governor of Judea was the minefield of any career-advancing politician, very difficult to take steps. And so he had, at least he thought, he had great matters on his mind. He certainly never expected to have his maker standing bound before him. So we could excuse him at some level, but I cannot defend Pilate any further because he is also at the same time clearly a cynical man, a man who scoffs at the very idea of truth. And where did such a miserable attitude lead him? To crucify his maker. We find him a man utterly destitute of moral courage. He knows what is right in the case before him. He says so three times. I find nothing wrong with this man. Jesus is innocent. 
but dispensing with the truth for the sake of expedience, knowing he was doing wrong, afraid to do right. This man is now famous in world history for crucifying truth incarnate. And, you know, and we wonder, how can, how can such terrible things happen in the world? I mean, it's pretty bad to, to crucify your own maker. But how does everything else happen? How do human atrocities take place? Well, you know what? Truth is the first casualty. You ever heard that saying? Truth is the first casualty of war. It's the first casualty of atrocity to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who grew up under Stalinist Russia, who suffered in the gulags. He wrote eight volumes exploring how Russia gave itself away to such an oppressive, murderous communism. He was not a Christian when he began his journey, but he learned in the gulag not only why he definitely needed God, but why his whole country needed God, for he wrote, quote, we got here this genocidal people who killed millions of our own for one simple reason. It's the reason old men told me at the beginning of the communist revolution what the problem was. Men forgot God. End quote. And once God... And once his truth was no longer a consideration, you know what was left? Just power. Statism, as Schaefer put it, whoever mentioned that earlier, Jeff. Once God is gone, then truth is gone, then all you have left is power. And you can see that in this very passage because both Pilate and the Jewish leaders here are disregarding the truth in their own way to accuse Jesus falsely. In the first case, to falsely sentence him to death in the Jewish trial, and in the second, to carry out such a sentence. And this situation is made very obvious when the Jewish rulers ask, we'll see next time, that a true insurrectionist be released so that a false insurrectionist could be crucified as Jesus was. They are not interested in truth. They're interested in power. And that is how such atrocities happen in the world. And so it is terrifying today to hear people say things like, there is no absolute truth. And we joke, we say, absolutely, is that so? There's no truth today. Is that true? Uh, but these statements, not only do they not make sense, they are the expression of a darkened heart. And that is the point. When truth is gone, you don't need to make sense anymore. You say, that's contradictory. We've already dispensed with contradictory. Point two, those who are not of the truth scoff at the very idea of truth. But for his part, Jesus is not at all interested in manipulating the truth in the pursuit of power. He is not interested in twisting the truth about how things really are in the world to suit anyone. He is certainly not interested in twisting the truth about God to meet your preferences. He is interested in the truth of God as it is. He is interested in making God known as he exists and not as you might want him to be. 
The kingdoms of this world seek to control behavior, but the kingdom of God seeks through truth to renew lives and minds and hearts from the inside out. And this brings us to our final point today. Everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus' voice. Almost word for word from verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus' voice. Or the NIV nicely paraphrases, I think. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. Who's on the side of truth? Jesus, Jesus cannot be dismissed with a scoff. Not this man. He said earlier in the book, if anyone wants to do God's will, he'll know concerning the doctrine whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You want to do God's will? You seek until you find. It's another implied invitation that you need to be asking the big questions. Many people go for years putting such concerns out of their heads until perhaps a tragic event happens or a death or a divorce, an illness, a catastrophe. It's amazing how how easily those comfortable bubbles can pop. And people find that the old answers for their lives don't work anymore. But it turns out very good because it makes them seek and find the truth. Sometimes that same realization comes not with tragedy, but what, what success. As we were reading a few weeks ago with a Hollywood guy that was uh, at the pool parties and everything for all these amazing people, and, and he finally thought, is this really all there is to life? It can't be this meaningless and this empty. Because he achieved all that he wanted. Some people just have a sense that modernism and materialism and consumerism have, in fact, failed them. Even atheists sometimes can begin to doubt their atheism. You know, it's not only Christians that suffer doubt. Everyone suffers doubts of his beliefs at some point. Doubts are good when they awaken us to seek and to find the truth. The question is, are you on the side of truth? Some people are awakened to find the truth wrestling with scientific ideas, perhaps in college, about the richness of the natural world and the cosmos and have to decide between a meaningless universe and a beautiful and purposeful one. Still others were raised in the church and for whatever reason suddenly become awakened and dissatisfied with going through the motions and a head Christianity and want to have an acquaintance with the Lord himself. In any case, Jesus is making an invitation of a sort to Pilate while on trial. You know, everyone who is of the truth, everyone is on the side of truth, Listen to me. And that makes you wonder who's really on trial. Is it the Lord on trial? Or is it Pilate on trial? As, as Jesus is turning it around, you see, and saying to Pilate, are you on the side of truth? Because you know the truth is often costly. It would have been for Pilate. And it will be for us. 
I read one prominent Chinese Christian who put it this way, quote, lies have no price on them. They are cheap and they abound everywhere. But for the truth, there is always a price to pay. First, there is the price of humility. For it is to the meek that light is given from God. If we are not prepared to buy the truth at the cost of our own humbling, we shall not receive it. Then there is the price of patience. Quick verdicts and impatient decisions have little to do with the divine light which is given to all those who will wait upon the Lord. And supremely, there is the price of obedience. For Jesus says, if a man desires to do his will, he shall know. Is our faith the cheap, easy kind that pays no price, he asks? Or are we prepared to have it founded on the truth of God, however great to us the cost of coming by that truth? That's the question to you. There's a cost for truth. there comes a higher cost of rejecting it. For one characteristic that the Bible reminds us that those are under God's judgment is that they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And it goes on to say that they will be condemned with the world, those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And you see many people like Pilate, it's not just that they're not interested in truth, they have other commitments. And people keep Jesus at a distance, not, be, not because they necessarily think that he's untrue, but because it's more comfortable for them at the moment to suspend judgment. But when we feel ourselves personally addressed, self-interested, things change, right? If somebody punches you in the nose, <clears throat> you don't suspend judgment. You don't Plead ignorance uh, on the greater issues. As soon as personal interest is at stake, you know that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and the person who punched you is absolutely guilty. And if a judge said, not guilty because his truth is relative for him, and it's a good thing for him to punch you in the nose, and you can't put your absolutes on him, you would say, that judge is a bad judge. The point is that people who are perpetually seekers and say, oh, I don't know what truth is, and I don't even think I could find out, well, It's amazing how fast you can find out things when you find out your personal interest is at stake. Suddenly, the truth is pretty obvious to you. The key is to stop deceiving yourself and to wake up and to be honest with yourself because the truth is there all the time. If you care to look, Jesus makes the invitation. All who are on the side of truth They listen to me. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave doesn't abide in the house forever. But a son abides forever. And therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Well, people are rightly afraid of believing 
falsehood. But I say there's an even greater danger of being so jaded that you can never believe the truth. The invitation comes to you. What will you do? In conclusion, I watched a very, very interesting interview with two students at Oxford University who were being asked about their purpose in life. Uh, the first to answer, first to speak up, was a, a Christian young lady. She, she gave a touching answer about the, how the joy of knowing God and what that's meant for her in her life's choices and direction. And I think she probably could have gone on for an hour about how much it meant for her in that difficult academic path to know God's fellowship and love and strengthening and satisfaction and the truth and hope and joy and purpose for living and everything else. But, but then she made this very interesting comment. Listen, listen to this. She said, I thought when I got here to Oxford, people would talk about great and important questions like this. But they talk about it much less than when I was a schoolgirl. She said, they just keep you busy all the time. <laughs> Laughed the students. <laughs> yes, I know. And then, well, the interviewer turned and asked the girl next to her, and what about you? She said uh, she hadn't really thought about it, purpose in life, you know. As an agnostic, she said, she didn't think that there was a purpose in life. Uh, but when asked then what, what she wanted in life, she, just, she didn't have a, a goal, but rather she, she did want to have stories to tell. And it was, to my mind, such an amazing contrast that here at the world's preeminent institutions of the humanities, and it's so much easier not to think about the truth but just to stay busy. It's like they're keeping you busy preventing you from thinking about the great questions. Does that, does that ring hollow to you as it does to me? Is that astonishing? And this is why it is easier to remain a pe perpetual seeker than a joyful finder. But God said in the prophets, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. On the other hand, there is a power in the knowledge of God, a power that is unlike what is found in the worldly knowledge, a power that not only sets people free, as we read, but also transforms them root and branch. A book might inform you, but Christ can transform you, for his knowledge is power, and perpetual seeking is only perpetual emptiness. At one Harvard commencement address, the graduate up front lamented. Listen to what he said. The freedom of our day is the freedom to devote ourselves to any values we please, on the mere condition that we do not believe them to be true. Again, does this approach to life and truth not ring as hollow to you as it does to me? Is this not astonishing? Truth is powerful in general because truth allows us to participate in reality. You want to go against truth, it's going to be a hard road to hoe, people. That's the case in the natural world. 
but it's also the case in the spiritual world. It's not just enough to believe something. Don't believe it if someone says to you, well, as long as your faith helps you, that's all that matters. No, belief does not create truth. Truth must be discovered. Belief doesn't create truth. No matter how hard I try, believing something will not make it a fact. For example, I can believe in all, with all my heart that it will snow tomorrow, but that will not guarantee any snow. I know I've tried. <laughs> no snow. Belief is only as good as the reality into which we are putting our trust. And therefore, the emphasis of the Gospel of John is not the act of belief, but the object of belief. What's important is not trusting, but whom you've trusted. And that is the invitation, ultimately. Not to truth in the abstract, but to find out that truth is personal. For Jesus said, I am the way. And the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, let us pray together. Gracious Father, you have spoken of yourself as the God of truth, and our Savior, the one who says the way, the truth, and the life are what he is and has been to us. We pray that you would give us a passion for the truth, for the true truth. Wake us up. Give us an understanding Teach us to test all things and hold fast on what is good. Rid us of the plagues of nominalism and relativism and all the falsehoods that swirl around us in all our day, the fake news and the jadedness that creeps in, that weighs upon us, that is seen in our faces. We pray that we would be renewed in the power of the truth. Deliver us. Deliver us from the spirit of this age Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, deliver us to your heavenly courts.